So this is from the Zen master, the Vietnamese Zen master and poet Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, If we do not realize the unity of the practice and the rest of our life, between the sings and the road, then we would have in ourselves absolute compartmentalization with no communication whatsoever between the two compartments, not permeable. Every action, every thought has an effect. Even if I just clap my hands, the effect is everywhere, even in faraway galaxies. Every sitting, every walking, every smile will have an effect on your daily life and the life of other people also. And practice must be based on that. So tonight we're going to give a talk on the inseparability of what we do here on the cushion and what happens out in life. Because as you'll see and as many of you are familiar with, there is nothing we do here that does not impact everyone and everything we come into contact with. And I think sometimes meditation can get a bad reputation, like, oh, they're just sitting around gazing at their navel. It's so selfish. And it's just been my, um, my experience. It's such the opposite of that. It isn't a selfish act. It's a tremendously powerful act to get to know ourselves, to see clearly into things. And then as we do it, Everyone and everything we touch is affected. So I like to think of it in terms of several different domains, three domains of practice. And these domains are the personal domain, the relational domain, and then the social domain. And these these are realms in which our practice essentially interpenetrates So in other words, if you're working on yourself individually, it's going to affect things that happen in your relationships. It'll affect your community, your family, your neighborhood. And then it'll also affect your job. It'll affect the world. It'll affect society and structures. So we have this, the personal realm, the relational realm, and then the larger social or community realm. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these realms, and then um, Grove is also going to talk tonight, so we're having a, a duet, and, uh, and he's going to touch more on, specifically more following in on the social and working, being an activist, and how to bring, um, how to bring our practice into these facets, into every facet. It creeps into all the corners. You can't get away from the Dharma. <laughs> So, for example, when I was talking about these three realms, the personal, the relational, and the social, if you work on your cushion, so let's say you practice patience, when you go out at home, hopefully you'll have more patience. When you, if you're a person who does work that serves others, you'll have more patience. Whatever you're doing, the, the patience, it'll carry through the realms. Now, it also works that if you work in another realm, it'll impact, the. say, if you work in the relational realm, it'll impact the personal and the social. So if you work, if you, um, for instance, learn how to love in a very deep way, that's going to impact your meditation practice, who you are as a person, and it's going to impact the larger structures of society. And then, for instance, 
if you look at certain, let's say we want to call social interventions that work to build compassion. And a great example would be, for instance, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, where they brought people who were victims and perpetrators of the apartheid together to, to come and see deeply into what had gone on and to learn to forgive. And this impacted individuals, it impacted relationships, it impacted communities. And I think you get the picture. There's no, there's no separation. And when we get confused sometimes and we think, okay, I'm just working on myself, it's not just working on yourself. So I'll start a little bit with the personal. This is very... Um, you know, you've had this very direct experience this week of what you cultivate, what you practice, you will cultivate. So you've seen that the more you sit there, the more you practice with whatever you're experiencing, the more it's going to become a more comfortable and familiar quality of your heart and mind. So the Buddha said, with every drop of water, the water bucket fills. And what that means is, if you imagine a bucket of water I'm sorry, an empty bucket, and you drop, you practice a little bit of generosity, and you drop a little water drop of generosity in the bucket, and then you drop again, and you drop again, and then ultimately you look down at the bucket, and the water bucket is full with generosity. So you can be putting water drops of rage and hatred and fear, or you can be planting (laughs) seeds or dropping water um, of kindness, happiness, renunciation, It's up to you. So what I've seen with my practice is that whatever I've practiced here, it's just, you can just see the difference it makes in my life. So for instance, the other night I was talking about that tendency that some of us have to strive to really work hard in their practice, so much so that it gets out of balance. When I was practicing in the early days, I used to, my early days of practice, I used to really work hard. I was a total type A person. I had to achieve and do well and succeed. And I took everything that I might have taken in another, like a profession in my life and brought it straight into my Dharma practice. And what happened was I got to an edge where I just couldn't practice that way anymore because it was too hard on my being. And I had to learn to let go into that equanimity that I was talking about. And when I saw that, when I made that shift or began to see, it was like everything in life started to take on a different cast. I saw the way I was striving in my relationships. I was striving in my job. I was working. I was over-efforting. I couldn't relax. I couldn't just be. And the shift in my meditation practice then allowed me to open more to a different way of being, a way more rooted in ease and equanimity. And it's still an issue. It's not like these things necessarily go away because we have certain tendencies of our minds. But we learn to be more, we, we learn that what we cultivate, we can, um, we can see it start to flower. And I know that there are times when I get kind of a little, little goal-oriented or trying to succeed or do, and oftentimes you know, my partner will look at me and say, and say this is life. You know, there's nothing to get. It's not about going somewhere. We'll just be doing something really ordinary, and he'll say, this is it. 
just relax. This is it. We're here. (sighs) (laughs) Nothing to get, nothing to achieve, and yet there is this movement, this practice, this process. And I've seen it with students all over the place. People think people change, they transform. I was teaching a retreat, um, sorry, not a retreat, a series of classes with some teenagers. And one girl came into the class and she was um, very depressed. And she she was 16 years old, having a very hard time. And she just, she kind of hung in there and I think her mom made her. So she stayed and she just practiced during the course of of the several weeks. At the end, she wrote this for me. She said, I've been pretty depressed for the whole year. See, I got involved with this guy and I knew he was bad for me, but I was hooked on him. And then when we broke up six months ago, all I could do was think about him. He was always in my head like he possessed me. When I started meditation, I found it hard, kind of boring, and I was always sad. So she's telling me this. She actually told me this, and then I had her write it. And when she's telling me this, it was as though her face had completely transformed. Because what she said was, one day I realized I'm not my thoughts, I don't have to keep carrying my boyfriend around in my head. So I let go. And now my mind is free. It's free. 16 years old. It may be the insights you develop here that directly translate into your life. It may be just the the qualities of heart and mind that grow, the patience and the equanimity and the more peacefulness and the generosity, all of these come as we practice. It may be the process that we learn that starts to become second nature so that we actually begin to prefer letting go to clinging on. It becomes a way of being so that, you know, you're out in life and you're stuck in something, of course, because we're constantly getting stuck in some emotional issue or we're mad at someone or... But when we're stuck, because of our practice, we know what it feels like to let go. And even if it's in the very back of our minds, it's still there's this reminder that's within us. And it's like the mind begins to let go more frequently, more easily. And there's such a beauty in this process, the relief, the release of the clinging What you learn here impacts the very fabric of your being. Sometimes it's just sort of a chipping away. Sometimes it's a big insight that you get and suddenly things are different. Sometimes it's way more mysterious than that. Oftentimes people say, well, I'm just doing it. I'm not really seeing much effect. But it does affect us. It affects us on this very profound level that's so beyond where we can understand cognitively. It's as though, I always think of it as something's cooking down there, that I don't really know what it is, but then it just surprises me. It'll come up at the most unexpected moments. I remember Sharon Salzberg, one of our teachers, who talks about how she was doing a meta retreat and she was just saying the phrases, may I be happy, sending it to herself, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, and saying it and saying it and saying it. And she just thought, nothing is happening. I'm just wasting my time. 
And she left the retreat, and when she left the retreat, she went home, and she picked up this mug, and it, she dropped it, and it fell, and it broke. And the first thought that came into her mind was, you are such a klutz. And the second thought that came into her mind was, but I love you anyway. <laughs> and she thought, where did that come from? Well, it came from something going on on this deep level, this, this, this movement that we're, that we're not so aware of, that it's, it's, a, it's a trust in the beginning. It takes a little bit of faith. But after time, and many of you have seen that there is an impact, that something is cooking inside us. So do we change? Do human beings change? Definitely. You know, the scientists, I'm, um, I tend to try to quote scientists. I'm not a very scientific person, but I'll just say, so if I get it a little wrong, I might. But the scientists talk about neuroplasticity of the brain. So they thought, a neuroscientist said that, they thought initially years ago that brain, once you go through certain developmental pro, uh, processes, your brain stops changing. But what they see now is, no, you can continue to affect the growth and development of your brain. And, the, and what you practice will cultivate, so it'll affect the neurons in your brain. This will, it, you'll change. You have the capacity to change. And at the same time, we're sort of still the same. You know, we don't get that. We don't become these, like, I think so. oftentimes we have this image, oh, if I do enough spiritual practice, then I'm going to be perfect. Then everyone's going to love me, and I'm, gonna, I'm never going to say anything rude, and I'm going to be the nicest, most wonderful, you know. Slowly, slowly. But, <laughs> but what happens instead is there's a process of us becoming one, more who we are, not rejecting pieces of ourselves, and also just being more okay with who we are. Oh, there's that stupid part of me. You know, but not in a judgmental way. Like, there it is again. Okay. Oh, there's where I was rude. Well, it's just rudeness. And then you make a determination. I'm going to try not to do that again. But it's, there's something so self-loving that happens in this process, in this process of mindfulness. Mindfulness and the metta coming together to teach us to change us, but change us in these you know, unexpected and beautiful ways. Many of you have heard this, but I think it's worth rereading. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. (laughs) change. 
It takes time. So as we practice and our relationship, as we practice on this personal level, it also impacts our relationships. It impacts who we are in relationships. When you begin to see the way some people experience seeing how their mind is so much clinging after what's pleasant, fearful of what's painful, and then when they begin to see that, okay, it's just the nature of the mind to cling in that way. We just go after what's pleasant. It's what's happened. And then there's this quality of, oh, I can just relax. It's just wanting the pleasant. And I've known... When I've seen that for myself, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm such a control freak. And I've gone in and I've talked to my teachers and say, I just see myself going after pleasant all the time. I want to be warm and I want to eat good food and I want to be, I want this, I want this. And I've just had teachers over time say to me, yeah, maybe you're a control freak, but look, you're having one moment of freedom. And that one moment of freedom is going to lead to the next and the next and the next. And it's true, because the more that I've seen that, the less I need to run so much after what's pleasant. And it's impacted my relationships. It's impacted, it's, one becomes less controlling, because you don't feel the need to be, always have everything going perfectly in the right way, in the way it ne- you think it needs to be. And then we begin to draw people to us who really mirror our values and they're people we want to spend time with. And the Buddha talked about the importance of having spiritual friends. He said it was all of the holy life, having a community, having people who who also believe in what we believe in and represent our values and act them out and who we can talk about what we're dealing with and who, um, who really are compatriots along the path. So it impacts ourselves, our relationships, and then it can impact our relationship to the world, whether that's how we hold the suffering in the world, or how we act in the world. And I remember this moment on retreat where I was practicing. It was several months into a retreat. It was winter was coming on. I was doing, I think, three months at that time. And I was sitting, I was in this room that was quite warm and comfortable, But I had all these blankets with me that I thought I was going to need for when it got cold. And it started getting colder and colder, but the room stayed really warm. So I just kept the blankets on the side, and I had this nice pile of about three or four blankets. And one day, there was a note on the bulletin board, and the note said, if you have any extra blankets, please return them because yogis are cold. And I thought, well, that doesn't really apply to me. And um, so I just thought, I can't really do that, because if I do that, what if I get cold? I don't want to do that. So I sort of kept my blankets, and then that note just stayed up on the bulletin board. And every day I'd walk by it, and I'd see the note, and I'd think, well, oh, yeah, but what if I get cold? So about a week later, I finally realized, all right, I'm not getting cold. I need to try to just practice some, some renunciation here. 
So very late at night, like two in the morning, I snuck outside <laughs> with these piles of blankets and sort of mindfully kind of put them down and ran and hoped no one would see me. And as I was walking back, I sat down on my meditation cushion and it was in this moment that I realized, wow, I'm just seeking the pleasant. I'm scared. I want to be safe and warm and secure and I don't want to have pain. And I saw the way, and it was as though my mind ranged in 50 different directions and I can see all of the people who just want to be safe and secure and the way that the government thinks it wants to be safe and secure and the way that people have alarm systems and the way they protect their property and the way it was, it was as though it was those I could see on this global level, everything that was happening, the way I was not separate in any way from the suffering of insecurity that we live with on this planet. And so much compassion arose for myself and for the way we are and the way we live. And it was a very profound moment of seeing, so not only does, does it change my personal patterns, but it can change the way I view and relate to the suffering on this planet. Practice can drop us into a deep place of compassion. This is from Ryokan, the Zen poet and monk, who said, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather all the suffering people in this floating world. It's such a beautiful expression of the compassion that begins to come as we meet the suffering of the world, as we meet our own suffering, and in understanding and transforming our own suffering, we can open and acknowledge the suffering of the world. Sometimes it's just the training that we do when we sit there with our knee pain hour after hour, and we learn to soften that when we go home, when we see a homeless person, that we don't immediately turn away. We think, no, I can actually be with something that's not, um, I can be with someone else's suffering. We can be with the knee pain and open to the suffering that we read about, but not in a way so that we get overwhelmed. Because if you've been practicing, you've been seeing, okay, I don't sit there and stay with the knee pain until I'm overwhelmed. That doesn't do any good. We can make this translation to what's going on in the world. No matter what the circumstances, we have this capacity for compassion to arise. On this cushion, compassion gets developed. And I want to read this story. And the reason I want to read it is because I just got this new book. Um, It's Eve Ensler's latest book, who's the author of The Vagina Monologues, and some of you are familiar with her. This book is called Insecure at Last, (laughs) Losing It in Our Security-Obsessed World. And she's on the cover screaming. (laughs) So this is a story of which I read it, and I just thought such incredible compassion in such dire circumstances. (laughs) 
And Eve Ensler goes around the country, for those of you who are unfamiliar, I mean, sorry, around the world, meeting with women who've been in horrible conditions of violence. And she works with them, and she tells their stories, and she brings them aid, and she's just done incredible work across, across the planet. So this is the story. And if you think you're getting out tomorrow, just listen to this. It's called Betty Gale Tyson is Free. I had to be there when Betty Gale Tyson stepped into freedom. I had to see the expression on her face, the energy in her body when she transitioned out of 25 years of captivity, when she walked out of the big house, away from the familiarity of daily abuse and disregard, away from the mindless, secure routine of daily counts and electric gates slamming shut, the choiceless world of drab green uniforms and black work boots and scentless state-ordered soap. So obviously she's in prison. I had to be there when she left her sisters, some she had mothered and protected, others she had loved on the run. I had to be there as she fell out into the wilderness of freedom, separating her from the walls and barbed wire boundaries she'd come to call home. I wanted to witness. I wanted those 25 years to mean something. I flew in a prop jet to Rochester, New York, at the same time Betty Gale Tyson was being driven seven and a half hours from Bedford Hills Correctional Facility to a Rochester jail. She was about to be released. Her sentence had been vacated because her lawyer had found enough evidence to reveal the illegal procedures surrounding her case. I was in Rochester because her family had invited me, allowing me into their waiting. They had rented a long white limousine. There in the limo outside the jail, I moved in with Betty Gale's history. I sat by her mother, who was attached to an oxygen tank, terrified she would stop breathing before her daughter was free. I sat with her beautiful sisters, who were dressed in high heels and gold. I sat with their longing and missing and resentment and explosive joy. I had fallen in love with Betty Gale Tyson eight months before at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. I'd met her in a damp underground room when I was running a group for a writing group for long-termers. There was no sunlight on her face. She was shivering. She was always cold. She, uh, she saw my leather jacket, and she petted it and moaned and said how much she missed leather and longed to wear black, because black is illegal in prison. Maybe it was her predicament that made me fall in love with her, 25 years in prison for a crime she did not commit because she was severely beaten into a confession by the detective on her case. Betty Gale was 25 years old when they put her in prison. She was a drug addict, poor and black, working the streets. They were looking for a murderer. She was available. It didn't matter to the police that she was not the murderer. It didn't matter because Betty Gale Tyson's life did not matter to them. She was poor, black, and drug addicted. Maybe I fell in love with the way she handled her predicament. No bitterness, no sadness, no bitterness, only sadness, and the feeling of always being cold. Maybe it was her beauty, her cheeks, her smile, her waist-long dreadlocks. Maybe it was her name, Betty Gale Tyson. You didn't forget that name. Maybe it was the way she wore her prison or, or, or uniform, the short skirt, her legs strong, sculpted, gorgeous. Maybe it was the way she refused to die, refused to give up her passion, her body, her desires, 
how she kept herself fulfilled and connected for 25 years behind bars. Maybe it was how much the other inmates loved her and counted on her and been changed and helped by her. How she held the sick women and those who were dying of AIDS and baked carrot cake for the young inmates and taught them patience and gave them presents until they learned the ropes. Maybe I wanted to be like her. The world had determined her condition as insecure, uncaring, filthy, and cruel as can be, yet she refused to allow the world to change her nature. A little after 8 o'clock, Betty Gale walked out the doors of the jail dressed in white and high heels. She was a vision. There was a crowd of people who had known her and knew about her case, and they went, like, they went crazy. When she finally made her way to the limo, her family pulled her inside like they were rescuing a drowning swimmer and dove in on unison on top of her. And there was this sound, this guttural collective family cry, a howl that went on and on and on. Later that night, we ate cold cuts in a hotel suite. It was a party. The family was wild with relief as they kept watching her on the news. It was their way of confirming, yes, she was in fact there with them in the room. Praise the Lord. Betty Gail Tyson was free. Afterward, I held her in my arms, and she cried. Twenty-five years of tears began to fall out of her. And the same night she got her freedom, she felt so guilty. She cried. Not for the crime she hadn't committed, but for the sisters in prison she had left behind. I was going to say a lot more, but I'll hand it over to Grove. Is that okay? of our practice and um, at Vallecito at our uh, retreat center in New Mexico we hold a lot of retreats and leadership trainings for frontline activists who are working for social change uh, working uh, in the environmental field uh, human rights um, across the, the, the whole sector And to me, one of the uh, most uh, compelling images in all the Buddhist traditions is that of the Bodhisattva um, that has come to us from the Mahayana tradition. And a Bodhisattva is one who has worked ardently and uh, with resolution and diligently to cross the great flood of suffering uh, and, in fact, has reached the other side. But upon reaching the other side, has made the decision to come back and to help to relieve the suffering of others. And I often think at Vallecitos, we're a high mountain ranch uh, that uh, we're growing little bodhisattvas uh, there on the ranch. And I use this image uh, frequently in uh, closing our retreats there on the ranch And there's a lot of talk through the years in um, the country around uh, Vallecitos, around the ranch, about what it is that we do up there. 
Um, <laughs> and I was, uh, a year or so ago, I was uh, talking to uh, the owner of the gas station at Trace Piedras, which is the only town which is 30 miles from the ranch, um, down a little bit out of the mountains. There's nothing more than a crossroads and a gas station and a diner whose hours, it's unclear when it's open, <laughs> what days or what time of days. So I was talking to Duke. His name is Duke, Duke Cozart. And an old-timer rancher comes up, and uh, Duke uh, introduces me to him. And I had met him before. And if you remember that movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, at the end of the movie when they're in Columbia, and that old guy that they're uh, carrying money for, every time he speaks, he spits. Except that it dribbles right down his chin every time he does it. That's what this guy did. He came up, and Duke introduced me, and I shook hands with him. And so he sort of spit, and he sort of went down his chin, and he said, so what is it exactly that you're growing up there at that ranch? <laughs> And I've been in this country long enough, actually, where I know how to spit quite well. So I spat, and I looked at him, and I said, bodhisattvas. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And Duke, Duke stood there shaking his head. Like. <laughs> so we all know that we are uh, living today in times of uh, great imbalance. Um, from every perspective, uh, it is clear that we humans, us two-leggeds, in this little fragile planet that we inhabit, are now in great peril, um, in great jeopardy, in great danger. It's really unprecedented. Um, it really is unprecedented. That bumper sticker, you probably have seen it. If you aren't completely appalled, then you have not been paying attention. It's clear to all of us that we are living in what Winston Churchill, uh, as the, the clouds of war gathered over Europe, as the wor world was sliding, the entire world, into world war, he said, we live in times of consequences. And today, we know equally as well that we li live in times of great consequences. The enormity of uh, what faces us in the world from every sector, every, every perspective, is very, very difficult to hold for all of us. The crisis in the climate, global warming is in fact real. The facts are not in controversy. We are, unless we do something in the next 10 years, it is clear without any question that we are going to take an irreversible decline, the planet and all of humanity. By every measure, we know that the earth is at a tipping point, and we are here. The earth is 
warmer in the last hundred years than it's been in the last 130,000 years. To put it in perspective, the Buddha sat and gave his teachings only 5,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. 130,000 years, the earth has never been this warm. Having worked in the nonprofit sector all my life as a <coughs> trial lawyer in the environmental movement, I have now shifted. Um, I've tried my last case several years ago, and I've started a couple of uh, new companies uh, focusing on this really overarching uh, problem facing all of humanity and all of the world of global warming and the climate crisis. And we're working on a project in Brazil of reforestation of the Atlantic rainforest, um, an institute that was founded by the human rights photographer, Sebastião Salgado, who has documented the human suffering of the rural poor of the world being displaced, the dispossessed, moving into the new cities of the 21st century, like Sao Paulo and Mexico City. And he has dedicated this institute to reforesting the Atlantic rainforest, which together with the, Atl the Amazon rainforest constitute the lungs of the world. The, these two rainforests alone, the Atlantic rainforest, runs the entire... Um, coastline of Brazil and Uruguay and into Argentina 400 miles deep in. Together they produce more than 30% of the oxygen for the world. They're truly the lungs of the world. And the Atlantic rainforest has been, 90% of it has been cut down. The Amazon now at 15% and going quickly. So we're engaged in this really great effort of restoration of the rainforest, and that has moved me into uh, launching a company uh, under uh, the Kyoto Protocol's uh, Carbon Investment Fund of leveraging <laughs> traditional economic incentives to um, uh, encourage to cause uh, reforestation in tropical lands. So this... Um, My wife uh, recently found the cartoon, since um, at home all I'm talking about uh, is global warming uh, and the climate crisis. And, um, and she herself is working in the conservation movement. And it's, it's a husband and wife, of course, at home, <clears throat> one on the couch, uh, the other in a chair. And the wife is reading a magazine, and she reads to the husband. In the next five years, global warming is going to make you ten times more irritating. <laughs> so what I'd like to do uh, is uh, share with you a different teaching uh, from a different uh, tradition uh, that is... Uh, I, uh, I think indicates and demonstrates the commonality of all the great spiritual traditions. And that comes from uh, the great uh, uh, spiritual tradition of the, the Hindu uh, religion. 
And it comes from the primary teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, the great epic poem of that uh, tradition and of that culture. And the Bhagavad Gita means the song of the Blessed One. Um, and uh, in it, uh, the scene is timeless. Uh, and the, it's a, a battle uh, is about to commence between uh, two clans, of course, of the same family. Uh, one clan represented by the good guys, the paragons of virtue, uh, Arjuna and his brothers, and then his evil cousins are on the other side, the hundred sons of a blind king. And the, the poem and the epic starts at the very beginning of the battle, at the moment that the, the armies are marching towards one another, and you get this picture of tens of thousands of warriors on the plains somewhere in time, marching towards one another, and Arjuna or orders his charioteer to take to ride out into the middle between the two armies. And his charioteer, of course, is Krishna, who turns out to be God incarnate. And as he comes into the middle between the battle, between the armies marching towards one another, he surveys the whole battle scene. And what he sees are grandfathers and fathers and sons and cousins. And he becomes uh, uh, completely despaired. And his, his legs tremble and his mouth becomes dry. And he drops his arrows and his bow and falls to the floor of his chariot and begins to weep. And at that moment, Krishna and Arjuna start what is called the wondrous dialogue. And at that moment, of course... Everything comes to a halt. All the uh, armies are just uh, uh, completely uh, stopped. And in this wondrous dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna, uh, they for uh, discuss uh, uh, death, life, non-attachment, what duty is, what responsibility is, what spiritual practice is. And in that teaching, the central teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, that they, it comes back to again and again, Krishna does, is this. We are the owner of our actions, but we are not the owner of the fruits of our actions. Therefore, be attached to your actions, but do not be attached to the outcome, to the consequences of your actions in the world. You have a right to your actions, but never to your actions' fruits. A very difficult teaching for most of us, and particularly for activists. Uh, this is the teaching that was the core belief for Gandhi and many others as a result of Gandhi. Martin Luther King said, you know, Christ gave me the message, but Gandhi gave me... Uh, Christ gave me the message, but Gandhi gave me the method. And the method was this, the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. So it does not mean, and Gandhi does not mean, that we give up action, that we don't act in the world. In fact, we have a responsibility to act in the world and to act responsibly and appropriately. And from that set of values that Philip was talking about, that we, we seek to cultivate in this practice. 
No one, Gandhi says, has attained the goal without action. And Gandhi used this teaching in the context of dismantling the British Empire. He would literally, every morning when he got up, he would go into his prayers and he would examine whether or not the action that they might have been planning for months to be taken that day that involved hundreds of people, thousands of people, he would look closely. And if he saw that he was attached to the outcome, he would get up and cancel it, (laughs) much to the consternation often of those working around him. Because he saw that if he was attached to the outcome, he necessarily was going to taint or poison the outcome itself. Martin Luther King, in dismantling the legacy of slavery, segregation operated under the same principle. So this is what Gandhi says in his commentary on the Gita. The Gita, he says, or the Gita says, do your allotted work, but renounce its fruit. Be detached in act and have no desire for reward and act. This is the unmistakable teaching of the Gita. He who gives up action fails. Again, we have a responsibility to act. He who gives up only the reward, however, rises. But renunciation of the fruit, that is the outcome, the consequences of our action, in no way means indifference to the result. Seems contradictory, doesn't it? Renunciation of the fruit or the outcome does not mean that you are indifferent to the result. In every regard to every action, one must know the result that is to is expected to follow, the means thereto, and the capacity for it. He who, being thus equipped, is without desire for the result and yet is wholly engrossed in the fulfillment of the task before him. And is said to have renounced the fruits of his action. He goes on, Again, let no one consider renunciation to mean lack of fruit for the renouncer. The renunciation, that is, not being attached to the outcome, right? And this is where he uses that word hankering. Renunciation means absence of hankering after fruit. Renunciation here means absence of hankering after the result, after the consequences of your action. He who is always, and just think about this, he who is always brooding over results often loses nerve in the performance of his duty. He becomes impatient and then gives vent to anger and begins to do unworthy things. He jumps from action to action, never remaining faithful to any. He who broods over results is like a man given to the objects of the senses. He is always distracted. He says goodbye to all scruples. Everything is right in his estimation, and he therefore resorts to means fair and foul to attain his end. This was the basis of his whole doctrine of nonviolence. When there is no desire for the fruit of one's action, there is no temptation for untruth or for violence. Take any 
instance of untruth or violence in the history of the world, and it will be found that behind it was the desire to attain the cherished end, the results itself. So this is a little different teaching, but it's in accord with, of course, ours uh, in mindfulness, that teaching of the Buddha, nothing whatsoever shall you cling to is I or mine. It's all about clinging. Here it's a little different uh, teaching, offering uh, for us um, and how to hold. And that's the question here is how do we respond to the enormity of what faces us in this world? How do we hold on to it? How do we act in an appropriate uh, way? Our normal response often, particularly those who are working for change in some specific way in our culture or society, but its, it's common response for all of us is one of anger, often uh, uh, aggression, um, hatred. Uh, and it's important to just understand, of course, what anger is. You remember, it's the second of the five hindrances, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Aversion has a wide category of emotions from the coarsest, which is hatred and rage, aggression, hostility, and anger. But then it can go down to more faint tendencies, of course, resentment, annoyance, irritation, Um, boredom, and of course fear. Fear is a form of anger itself. And what we've seen, um, what um, is shared by all the activists who come to Vallecitos, in whatever realm they are working, uh, the women's struggle, gay and lesbian, HIV, economic justice, civil rights, Um, they all share one thing in common. Actually, they all share two things in common. One thing is they're all really pissed off. (laughs) And the second thing is they are really having a hard time sustaining themselves. And the two go together. Anger and rage and ill will at first looks to be very empowering. But actually, and you've seen this in your practice, and this is an actual application of what we do in the cushion out into the world, we can see that anger actually is very limiting. It's very painful. It's very debilitating. We have this notion that somehow if we surrender our anger, that we're going to be compromising our power. But in fact, anger colors our whole world, our entire experience. It's like a lens uh, onto our experience. We really can't see things clearly. We can't be effective. We think we are, but in fact, we're not. And the uh, findings of science recently have begun to confirm this, uh, what the Buddha has been teaching for so long. There was a collaboration between Western psychologists and neuroscientists and philosophers and Buddhist scholars, including the Dalai Lama, and they got together to talk about destructive emotions. And from the Buddhist perspective, and then from the most recent findings in the scientific field, 
This was one of the reports that was given from that science has recently uh, reported about anger. First, when anger arises, it biases our perception and cognition. We all know that if we've examined anger. And the, the Buddha was saying this a long time ago. Okay, that's confirmed. But they go on and say there is a refractory period during anger, and a refractory period is one where it's hard to manage or stubborn, that period when you're right in the middle of anger. There is a period during anger when you don't even have access to your own intelligence. (laughs) So it's clearly an afflictive motion and one that is ultimately destructive. So the question to us, of course, is how do we work with it? How do we transform it? Uh, And what do we use in its stead? When I was a young lawyer, uh, which was a long time ago, uh, (laughs) uh, I just passed 60. So this was in my mid-30s. And I was going into my first retreat. And I had been practicing law from right out of law school, environmental law. In fact, when the environmental movement started, I was one of the half dozen lawyers right there at the starting gate when we came out. And um, I had reached a place where, as Diana described, I was so uh, uh, obsessed and so engulfed with my work that I had fallen deathly ill uh, and in and out of the hospital, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And finally, somebody said, well, you know, there's this Buddhist meditation teacher who's doing a week-long meditation retreat. When you're ill, if it, you know, those of you who have been ill or are, no, you will do anything, <laughs> you know, that's recommended to you. I had, and in Santa Fe, I had tried everything, you know, uh, pyramids and shamans and throwing old bones. And um, I was really desperate. So I showed up at this uh, meditation retreat having no idea what was going on. I, I just really didn't have any concerns. In fact, I showed up with the pillow off the couch of my, at home. Can you walk, imagine walking into the hall and I set it down and sat on my pillow. <laughs> you know, that was really pathetic. And <laughs> I was in great pain, huge pain. You know, and psychic pain and spiritual. I was, you know, I had completely crashed and burned. So I went into my first interview with this teacher named Jack Cornfield. <clears throat> and I had filled out my interview form before, as many of you do, just giving us your entire history of, <laughs> you know, I've been working in the environment and I'm also burnt out and uh, the entire world depends on what I'm doing and, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean. <laughs> So I go in, and Jack's reading it, you know, and we're both young men at that point. And uh, he, he reads it, and he asks me some more questions. And again, I tell him, you know, I am, this work is so important, what I'm doing. And he asks me a little bit more about, well, how many cases are you doing, and how many hours of the week do you do? Well, you know, I mean, you just, that, that arrogance of youth. <laughs> was all there, but I was really in a sad state. And he said, well, Grove, you know what? And I thought, at that time, I didn't know about the secret teachings. All I wanted was a teaching. And I thought, you know, I'm going to get it. 
And he leans over to me and he goes, that is so fucked. <laughs> this is the Dharma, I thought, you know? And he said, you're going to die before your children are grown. And our children at the time, our daughters were the same age. My daughter was three and my son was six. Your children are, you're going to die before your children are grown. You're going to leave them as orphans if you continue in this way. If you let this anger continue to consume you. And he was absolutely right. You know, it was absolutely true. So... I've been practicing ever since. <laughs> so the, coming back to uh, our basic practice of mindfulness, um, and this is the secret teaching, okay? <laughs> really, when we look out there in our world, uh, there's not many things that we can actually change. You know, we come to retreat often thinking that we can, that... You know, we can change our personality, or we can change husbands, or we can change our job, or some circumstance in our life. You know, you really can't, if you take an honest survey of it. I figure about 90% of what's going on out there in my life, you really don't have much control over. Some, and you need to do that. But what mindfulness, so mindfulness is not about changing the circumstances of your life. That's a primary mistake a lot of us make about the practice, you know. But you know what it is about? It's about changing our relationship to the changing circumstances of our life. It's about changing our relationship so that we're not coming from a place of wanting and clinging or we're not coming from a place of anger and ill will and rage and hostility and aggression the, the circumstances in our lives are continually changing. You know, the Buddha talked about the eight vicissitudes. There's pleasure and there's pain and gain and loss. There's praise and blame. There's fame and disrepute. You know, wherever there's pleasure, you're going to get pain. It's, you know, that's this planet. If you want it only to have pleasure and gain and praise and fame, you're on the wrong planet. Because, really, the, the rest of it comes. Have you ever not had pain and loss and blame and disrespect? So what we can do is change our relationship to all the changing circumstances in our life. And really, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a relief uh, because we don't get so caught up. We don't get so burned out in trying to control what is happening all the time? We get so tightly wrapped up in this balancing act of trying to manage everything. And mindfulness is not about that. It's not a tool for managing things. It's a, it's a tool for coming into a relationship with the changing things in our lives. Even in those moments of our worst fear, uh, or our greatest confusion, our greatest pain, 
or our greatest attachment or clinging, when we can bring the lamp of mindfulness onto the situation itself, then mindfulness will see it clearly and will bring us into relationship to it. And that's really the freedom that mindfulness gives us and what this practice can, can give us. No matter what it is, mindfulness, if we bring mindfulness to it, we can come into relationship with it. The Buddha said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your mother or your father. So let's sit for a minute or a few moments. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your mother or your father. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 28, 2006. It is an offering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.